Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. The guy that I went to work for at Drinkmore is a guy named Bob Green. And I, I really went to work for him specifically for this reason. He had Drinkmore as the primary company, that was like his name and his face were kind of attached to Drinkmore. But when you got to know him, he actually had four or five other companies that had sort of been incubated within Drinkmore Water until they got traction. And then they were spun off as a separate business where of course he had a piece of the, of the business, right. but so did the person running. And so when I went to work for him and how I was running the coffee business, my original intention was the coffee business would be, you know, I would be running the coffee business. He would be my partner. I would be the face. He would be, you know, kind of the guy behind the scenes. The reason I stayed, you know, became kind of incubated in this in this bottled water company, which is kind of bizarre, is right. A, we did, we did build this thing kind of bespoke for him, you know, like, he has an MBA from Harvard, he's an engineer, he's a finance guy. I'm more of a right. marketer, sales, you know, well, track it, you know, well, you just have to do it. You know, it's an art and a science. He was like, I don't want to spend a nickel on advertising and marketing that can't be quantified. That was like sort of his approach. And so that marriage, gotcha. like, like brain, right brain. Yeah, yeah. So that marriage was like, so A, I went to work for him knowing that we were probably going to start something together. I wasn't going to go vigilante and say, you know, hey, screw you, I'm starting this company on my own. We were going to be partners. And that was sort of the understanding from the beginning. This green uh, drink more water company was an incubator for multiple, like a private incubator for multiple companies. That's pretty rare um, and pretty hard to find. But it sounds, Ben, like you encountered a business situation within the context of a different business where you saw a solution because of what you did. Yeah. And that's the genesis of the company, setting aside the, the technical details of being incubated inside that company, which is unique and interesting. So I understand you all left the same Fortune 100 company. That's right. How did you guys get together and, and what was your, what was the business planning process like? Hey, we're going to just leave and start a company or hey, we're going to leave and start a company and here's where we have our clients and here's how we're going to get clients. What was the business planning process like and how did you chart that? Yeah, it's such a good question, Tom. And actually, it's not quite as uh, neat and packaged as I wish I could share with you. It was pretty disjointed early on. And the reason is we all worked together and had a great loyalty to our clients at that firm and to the firm itself. But there were just so many different things happening, especially in 2020, that led each of us independently and individually to examine what we wanted to do with our careers. I will tell you, my partners at some point, you know, let's say around the water cooler, were talking about the challenges they were facing and at different times came to a decision to depart. 
I was kind of an afterthought in this conversation. I uh, took advantage of a very generous voluntary separation package from the firm that we all worked at. And once I announced my departure and ended up leaving, my partner shared with me the opportunity to participate in this new venture with them. And that's where it started to come together. So was this sparked by COVID? I mean, it's kind of interesting to hear about the great resignation and people starting their, taking their side hustle to be a full-time thing or just starting a new venture, moving into something different. Is that, was that part of what happened? Like, what was your, what was your mental process there? Such a good question. So I'll say there's sort of two parts to it. And COVID is a big piece. On one hand, we were going through a very tumultuous time in the stock market. You and your listeners probably remember well, March of 2020, it was a terrifying time on every level, but even uh, financial markets were very volatile and, and declining. So we had a lot of demands on us in the industry in general from clients. And I will speak for myself. I saw that as a very clear opportunity to do more and do our planning and our work more efficiently and more effectively using technology and other resources. So that sort of drove the thinking, the creative mind around what could we do to better serve clients and how would we do that in what format? Obviously led to us starting a firm. But the second part of it is just the the need, the volume of financial planning needs ticked up very quickly in 2020, partly as a result of the volatility in the market. But secondarily, as resignations did start to pick up, more was put on to the shoulders of the remaining employees and staff. And more and more and more was expected, you know, as with any industry. And we started to realize, I think, that we wanted to have fewer clients to serve so that we could serve them in a bigger way. And while we did everything we could to serve as many people as possible, where we are now in Reframe Wealth is a place where we have much more capacity to do deep dive quality work. My clarion call is employers. And this is where we come in as a company. We can show you, Mr. Employer, how you can offer, we call it an aspirational healthcare benefit. So what Nuka built was an aspirational healthcare system versus a deficit-based system. And employers can get that by simply the way they spend their money, by creating three simple things, alignment, choice, and relationship. In fact, my Forbes article just came out this morning about these three concepts. Any employer can have a Nuka-type model benefit for their employees by simply changing the way they spend their money. And so we're helping employers across the country not just implement coaching, but literally transforming the entire healthcare system by the way they spend their money. Is that part of your personal mission or part of your company's mission? Actually, not just to sell your services, but also to change the healthcare system. Absolutely, both. So that's what I mean. Is to rise up and be of good cheer, not only for individuals, but we gotta fix this. Healthcare is our nation's greatest financial economic crisis. It continues to go faster than every other industry. And it's because there's this misalignment. And that's why I say alignment is the very first pillar. You've got to get the employer, the CEO to go, wait a second. What do I want from healthcare? And who have I aligned to help me get it? And they don't, right. they don't 
actually say, here's what I want. And now I'm going to monitor to see if I'm getting it. And I'm actually going to inset my own internal team who's helping me get healthcare to accomplish it. And they never go out to their consultants or brokers or benefit you know, agents and say, you too are going to be aligned. And so we're teaching CEOs. The first thing is to align your internal and external teams to help you reach your goals, which are to attract and retain top talent, to improve employee health, because when people are healthy and productive, you get a better product and your best right. of 100% agree with you. Yeah. And, and so and I think, how great is it for you to have a mission that you're aligned with that goes hand in hand with the business that you do? I mean, I can just see your passion. I feel like <laughs> if I'm going to give advice to entrepreneurs after talking with you, Daryl, I'm thinking, be aligned, have a bigger mission than just your business. I mean, it's fantastic. You know, we talked briefly about the Great Resignation and the article you've recently written about that. I laid out what I thought the Great Resignation was. What I've read is that just masses of people are resigning. What's the answer to that? I mean, I guess retention's part of it, but how do you recruit out of that? How do you flip that on its head? Well, retention is the third part, but the first thing that you need to do is basic, right? Now, what we're seeing right now in some of the larger corporations in particular is, well, if we walk into a recession, there's going to be more people available well, I'm going to be able to hire. So there's those of us that have started talking about this. Remember the war for talent in 2000, 2001, when the bubble popped in my face? It's not getting any better. And now it has expanded, right? So now because of the pandemic in particular, and when, if, if you get a chance to see the article and I'll quote Dr. Hires, you know, when once you've come through a trauma, you reevaluate your life. And if you're able to make less money or look at an alternative way to make income, which there's so many of those avenues out there, you're not going right. to return to a regular workforce. Now, you know, when you look globally, the U.S. in particular, right, we work longer and harder than most of the other developed nations, right? Our nine to five has now been totally exposed and unmixed. All of this said, I can tell you this, there is a job for every person and a person for every job. Even if there's a shortage in your talent, there's ways that you can work in the talent base that you're looking for. There's ways that you can work around that, but it starts by putting biz good business acumen around the talent acquisition. And it doesn't matter if you're that, you know, that gas station owner that we were talking about the other day, or if we're talking about, you know, Fortune 10 to Fortune 10. And having worked with all of them, I can tell you, everybody has their own issue. But once you apply these really good practices, and you know, the name of the article is Turn and Face the Strange. The reason that we call that is it's a strange work. It is strange. What's out there? It keeps changing, it's morphing. The workforce isn't necessarily certain about what they want to do either. You know, the core may be, I know I don't want to do that, but what am I going to do in the entry? But one of the biggest concerns I have that I was alluding to earlier is these organizations that are saying, well, we're going to hit a recession if people aren't going to flood back to the workforce. I'm not saying. I mean, it would have to be catastrophic. So we have to learn and face this, this new world work. And with that, we have to come back and really take a, a, a long, hard look at who we are as, as an employer. And that's the beginning. first lesson was it sounded like he lent you some perspective and having perspective seemed to help. Yeah, like if you, if you see a problem as a puzzle or a game, yeah. it suddenly makes it so much lighter. I mean, when you think about it, it's like people will play video games. I watch my son play video games where it's like, you know, he gets into these, these jams and then it's like a game to get out. And I was like laughing to myself, like, that's not dissimilar. 
to when like a key employee says, hey, you know, I'm giving you my notice. Again, there's always that that disconnect between your expectations and reality. If you go into a business kind of realizing that how big your business gets is sort of dependent on your and your team's ability to solve these increasingly more difficult problems. But as the team gets bigger, like I look at the, the challenges that we face now, and they are way more complex than back then. So if you could go back in time to when you were putting the documents together and you were all for first signing those documents and you had this attorney prepare these documents, was there anything you would change? Again, not knowing that you wouldn't agree to march in the same direction, was there anything you'd change about how the documents were done? Did they get in the way? Did they help? That was one of the hardest parts. The way our documents were drafted was, you know, the way a marriage certificate is drafted. You think you're going to be together forever. You're headed off into the sunset on your honeymoon. And we didn't anticipate this kind of departure. So our operating agreement allowed for resignation at any time, no problem. It allowed for a separation of ways and partnership if there was some kind of massive indiscretion, but we weren't prepared for a friendly kind of departure from the path. And so that was actually really difficult because we had to figure out how does this work in terms of resignation, compensation, purchasing the ownership shares, pricing ownership shares for a business that had been in its nascent stages. So that was really difficult and we had to come to the negotiating table, which is never comfortable or fun, but we got it done. And I'm very proud of that. So might your advice be then just hearing this, and I have talked to clients about this too, and they never believe me, but maybe there should be a means for voluntary separation, right? A means to value if there's a voluntary separation and if there's a, a bad breakup, and one of the partners is at fault because they did something like a breach of fiduciary duty, then the value is reduced. But that's things to think about, right? So that's that's a, a one to grow on, I guess. Tell us what your thoughts are about this. these products campaigns that have been successful with Vice, the ones you haven't been successful with. I would say there's there's two things. There's many things, as I said in the last one, but I'm going to highlight two things that I, that I think stand head and shoulders above anything else if you're about to launch your product or your business. Number one is proof of concept. The number of people who invest a lot of time and a lot of money in ideas that have not been validated by the market is astonishing. And I don't mean asking family and friends. Family and friends are never going to tell you the truth. And I don't even mean, is this a good idea? Like, is this a problem that needs to be solved and this is a solution to solve it? That's only one piece of the jigsaw because it's There's one thing is to create a solution for a problem. The second thing is to be able to produce at scale that solution at a price point that is both going to be satisfactory to the customer and also satisfactory to you. So you can have a great idea that doesn't exist and is wonderful, but if it's set at a price point which no one's willing to pay, you're going to be in trouble. So anyone, I urge anyone who's launching a new idea or investigating a new idea or considering it to validate that idea in the market through either your own kind of mini funnels or stranger focus groups, any way you can validate, lots of good books on that. 
validate that that idea before you go too deep down that rabbit hole because it's a hell of a cost you incur both with your anxiety uh with your finances with your time if you move forward with an idea that you could have found out right at the start wasn't going to be as successful as you wanted it to be the second piece of it let's just look purely at the most successful campaigns we've worked on and maybe those that have faced the most challenges outside of validating the idea I would say with the product launch is just transparency and honesty with the founding team. There's a massive difference when a founder that we work with is upfront, honest, transparent, visible, responds to questions, interacts with prospective customers, interacts with customers, and really puts themselves front and center and holds that accountability for the success of their launch compared to founders who hide behind generic info at thisiscompany.com email addresses position themselves as a brand rather than identifying themselves as the founder now long term the brand needs to be the brand and the founder is going to be stepping away from likely going to be stepping away from everything going through him or her they're not necessarily going to be the face of the company forever but especially a launch when you have almost no credibility nothing to prove that you're going to deliver a product nothing to prove it's going to be a good one nothing to prove you're going to satisfy your customers the best level of trust you can or the best lever of trust you can pull is face to face human to human you can you know you can trust me and when people know you as an individual or trust you as an individual they're going to be a much more likely to take a risk on whatever it is you're launching there a challenge in particular that you've run across with your business or a challenge for businesses in general that you were able to address that you think our listeners would derive value from hearing about whether that was my, you know my biggest frustration is i watch the conference board every year conference board and the element trust barometer kind of like the two guideposts as far as i'm concerned where, where organizations are going of course that's okay so okay. the time in the top five is always talent but when the rubber meets the road the time the energy and the money doesn't go to town it doesn't go to recruiting. We're working with an organization right now that always has limits on their, always have big limits. And they're, you know, about, they're spending about two thirds more this year than they did last year on recruiting, right? So now we're coming into to next year and probably three years from now might be able to give them some savings. But I think not being smart enough and in investing in this the same way that you wouldn't, if you're, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a tech company, why are you not concentrating as much energy on the talent that you need? If you're the gas station owner, well, the people pumping the gas that are going to, your clients are going to decide to come back based on how they're treated by your gas guy. Who's going to tell you if someone's stealing? Who's going to tell you when the lights need to be changed? We forget the importance of people. And we, and we have never done a good job in the U.S. on this side. Well, I, I don't know too many countries that have maybe one or two. We need to really pay attention and say this is a serious thing with a business that we're not just going to talk about, we're going to put good practices around and we're going to fund it. So you're not talking about just recruiting, but you're talking about culture and retention and managing the people that are there already. Well, actually, I look at everything from the TA perspective, right? Which is directly tied into how you get them. But you have to know your own culture. Really know, not faith, not what you want to be. And that's right. not easy. I mean, I'm the CEO of my own company, right? So I have to take a hard look at myself all the time whenever we go through an up or down in, in recruiting. So, you know, in recruiting our own staff. But when you want to retain people, there's a secret formula, right? 
we get we get paid good money to do this, but I'll give you the secret formula. Like, okay, secret formula, ready? ready? Secret formula, ready? You recruit them the same way that you train them and onboard them, and you manage them the same. If you run an ad that says, we have a great place to work, everybody here is happy, we're great, you know, great based on New Jersey, stuff, whatever, and then they come in and they're onboarded and the trainer complains, or somebody in the class is out of line, none of that fits, right? Well, now I'm disillusioned. Now I come in and I'm working for a manager who's like, who told you that? Who thinks it's a great place to work? This is an extreme. But this happens all the time. And it's not that simple. It's because organizations don't truly understand who they are. They're not articulating it well enough. Then the rest of the team is not on board. So you need to say something like, we're an awful place to work. People will complain. And then people complain in the first class. And then the managers mean. And it's perfect because you're synergistic. Or, and we did this and it worked. We had a company that was a nine to five, sit in the chair, hit the phones. Everybody takes a break at the same time and most of them smoke cigarettes. And this was just before the pandemic. So we took this as a challenge. Like how do you staff that in today's market? Well, we looked for people that want to sit in the seat. You know, there are people who can only work under those circumstances. Right. And we started tracking them down by some of their cigarette habits, by the way, because we have technology that could do that. And it actually worked. So as long as you, and and who am I to judge? Look, as long as you're not morally disrupting or doing something illegal, I mean, we won't work for you. But I can tell you that there's organizations after organizations that are not necessarily kinder, friendlier, and welcoming. And there are people that fit that atmosphere that could never work in an organization that doesn't have a lot more structure. What advice would you give to people who are thinking about starting their own wealth planning business? Sure. So I would say two things primarily, Tom. One goes back to the challenge we just talked about, which is to have your documents set up properly. And if you're in a partnership, have that, for lack of a better word, prenuptial agreement. How will we separate ways amicably if we should have to? And I also think a lot of people in our industry and my business, they're not doing documentation to begin with. They don't have these robust partnership agreements. So that is absolutely critical. It's a non-negotiable, pay the money it costs to get it done. And then the second recommendation that I have, that fortunately we were very lucky to have implemented this, is a financial plan. And I know it sounds a bit cliche given the business I'm in, but I don't mean, you know, mapping out how your retirement dollars are going to work for you. I mean a financial plan for the business, down to dollars and cents, P&L projections, work with partners if possible to put together a pro forma so you know exactly where the expenses are going to show up most. And then as you're hiring vendors or partners or any employees for that matter, have a, an escape plan. Know based on your pro forma what the best case scenario could be and what the worst case scenario could be so that you're prepared financially for anything in between. Okay, so the two big pieces of takeaway we're getting, and one is directly relevant to your experience with your partner, is have really good ownership documents. In this case, probably a limited liability company, an operating agreement, or if you're a corporation, a shareholders agreement, and pay a lawyer to do a custom, something that fits your situation, set of documents and you experientially would recommend that and then the second piece of advice is and I, you know it's interesting because i hear things from entrepreneurs all the time like 
persevere or take the big leap or but yours is, is really practical advice and i like it i think it's it's useful to hear this and you're a financial planner so you're very aware of the top of mind have a financial plan for your business and not just a business plan but you're talking about pnls and performers and i will say a lot of entrepreneurs don't know even what these are or how to start to come up with something like that but i guess you have to figure out where your revenue is coming from, what your revenue might be, and what your cost might be. And that's just good practical advice. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs get excited by all of the TED Talks where they're like, reach for the stars, or you're going to do it, or do your best. You know, be flexible. And those are great pieces of advice. But at the end of the day, as Melanie from Reframe Wealth has said, you've got to have a concrete financial plan. What advice would you give to a partner who's fighting with, with their former uh, employer or fighting with anyone who's going through a true lawsuit, I mean, a truly emotional lawsuit, what is your advice? I mean, I think you've said it, but like, yeah. let's encapsulate this in a, in a, to a nice sound bite. And I'll put it at the end of the season as one of our sound bites of all of the people that come to Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll summarize into three points, Tom, okay. really quickly. Number one, take care of yourself. And sometimes that means reaching out to friends and family for help, um, take care of yourself, that's first and foremost. Number two is uh, do good work. There is nothing that can resolve the pressure against you of what others say than knowing that you, internally that you're doing great work for the people who count on you. And then third is map out the money. I mean, I'm a financial planner, but it also is part of my business. Map out what it's gonna cost, where the payments are gonna come from, how long you can you know, manage this, and you'll sleep a lot better at night. That's fantastic. So, I, I mean, I, I will ask if people are facing this kind of monetary rift in their business. I know you do personal wealth planning, but could they call Melanie and be like, hey, Melanie, can you map out this for me? I mean, I assume they should hire you to do this, but would you do that? Because I, I, I haven't even heard of somebody doing that. I mean, it makes so much sense. I'm sure businesses internally think about it, but mapping out the cost of the litigation you know, for business in terms of opportunity cost and the cost of attorneys and everything else. It's fantastic. What can you give our listeners to take away as they make their own entrepreneurial journey? And probably whether it's in healthcare or whether it's in any other kind of business, whatever pieces of advice you can share, we'd love that. So again, I'm very passionate about this idea of Edwards Deming philosophies of continuous quality improvement. Who's the customer? How do you delight the customer? How do you monitor the processes to see if you are delighting the customer? And then how do you improve the process? So I like to apply that business in general. And when you ask the question, who's the customer? Every business has more than one customer. And I categorize customers into the four S's. Okay. The four S's of service. There's the served, there's the server, there's the sender, and there's the solvency. And when employers approach business from the standpoint of, I need to balance how well I meet each of those customers' needs, they'll be a successful company. When I say the serve, who's your customer? In your case, if you're an attorney, who are you providing attorney services to? Are you meeting their needs? Are you measuring and monitor to see if you're meeting those needs? And then are you improving the processes through those close to the process? Who's the server? Who are your attorneys that work for you that provide the service? And are you meeting their needs? And that's right. where we fall so short in healthcare. Employers offer these benefits, these healthcare benefits to attract and retain top talent, but they never ask, 
their customer, how well is it working? And how can we improve the process to where you get a better product? Which is all Nuka did. And Nuka got the best healthcare system by simply asking the customer what they wanted. Employers can do that. The third one is the senders. Who sends you business? Which customers, whether it's referral sources or categories or channels of sales, how well are you doing at meeting their customer needs? And then finally, solvency. You might ask, well, how's that customer? Well, business has to have more money coming in than what's going out. And so the solvency of the company is a customer. And it too, just like you balance, you can go out of business taking care of those first three customers, but if you will balance the needs of the solvency of your business as a customer, monitoring its needs and looking to see how to improve its processes, when you balance all four S's, you'll be a successful company. So the advice is balance the four S's, which are the, the serve, the servers, the senders, and the solvency. And I love the idea of the solvency and treating that as a fourth pillar. The biggest thing I take with me every day is just to be a good human being. And I know it sounds ridiculous and ridiculously obvious, but I think there's a lot of advice out there and a lot of business people out there who uh, believe they have to position themselves on a pedestal. Okay. Rather than just being themselves, being good, being responsive, being open, being transparent. And so that's kind of one thing. But I also, there's a couple of pieces of advice that I got very early on that I think are very applicable to any entrepreneur and stuck with me. The first, let's stick with the English thing, comes from English comedian Ricky Gervais. And uh, I've got a quote from him. <laughs> I've got a quote from him on my wall. Nobody knows what they're doing either. And I think for as a new entrepreneur in particular, it's easy to look at successful entrepreneurs and think, oh my gosh, I can't do that. I don't know the secret. But at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to do the best they can with what they have. And we're all learning new things every day. Fair. So nobody knows the secret to life. If you have a passion for something, you know, move forward with it and believe in yourself. I would also, along those lines, something that really astonished me when I started my own business was that I felt there's no model with how everything must be done. I grew up, I went to a private boarding school and and I I guess I was under the impression that my life had to follow a certain path. And when I got into entrepreneurship and I started my business and I started reading more about other entrepreneurs, it's just the framework of life or business or career was just completely blown out of the water. And it was clear that if I wanted to pursue something, you know, that I'm not murdering the world, but if I wanted to pursue something that didn't harm anyone and was good, then I have the ability and there's nothing stopping me. And so I think that that perseverance and the fact that those limitations oftentimes only exist in someone's mind versus in reality are really important lessons that I learned and have really helped me. So I think they would help any new or even not new entrepreneur. I hear that all the time actually, Will, uh, in these entrepreneurship summits I go to, they even have sessions called Taking the Leap. And the Taking the Leap conversation is always around that mental switch in your head where you're like, I work for someone but now I'm not going to work for anyone and kind of throwing yourself into the void and realizing that, you know, you just have to say, sound, again, it sounds trite, right? You're saying, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I can just go ahead and do this thing. So it's like finding your company's mission is really tantamount or, or paramount, paramount 
in discovering how to hire people so that you're communicating the message. And you hate the word culture, but I mean, I guess at the end of the day, that's an easy way to describe. You've got to know your culture so that you can attract people that fit in your culture, right? And, and the first part to that is understanding, yes, who the company is, who you are, who you really are. And that's not always easy, right? So a right. few years ago, I got a call from a large organization that we worked with for many years. 7.30 in the morning, we need you to come in. We're changing recruiting. We're now shifting from an energy company into a technical company. And I'm like, God, I hope we didn't advertise, right? No, it's already out there. My point is, you can make a decision at the very highest level, but especially in large organizations, it takes a long time to trail down. So when you're recruiting, you need to know where you are at that point in time. Otherwise, you waste a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort turning out people that aren't a fit for the time. So it's not managing to your culture. It's not recruiting to your, it's recruiting to where you are now. You may aspire to be here, but you need to put your, you know, put your feet on the ground where you are now and look for people that match at that. One of the things that you have learned in your business that, that our listeners should take away. So being a front runner in talent acquisition is going to increase your business tenth. Right? Okay. The right people in the right seats are it. Put that commitment into it. Really understand that you can control who you're bringing to your organization. You know, if we go back to the Jack Welch statement, you can't always control that they're going to work out, but you can control who you're bringing in. Okay. So understand that no matter what the market is saying, no matter what the press is saying, the people are out there. Know who you are. And then the second, the second offering I would give is make a plan now to pinpoint who it is you and that's how you execute. Really understand who you are and then really understand who they are as a consequence and make a plan now to go after. Okay. There's nothing worse than being, you know, losing one person and then you know, losing a million dollars in revenue because you lost the customers. Always being always being prepared for that. And then the third thing I would offer is everybody's watching. And what do you mean by that? One of the things about well, social media is everything. Right. Nobody's gonna know. They're gonna know. Nobody's gonna know. They're gonna know. They're gonna know. You have to understand that everybody can see what you're doing now. There's glass door for employers, there's indeed for employers. I'm not saying be afraid of, of the commentary, but be genuine. Right? We hear a lot of people talk about their authentic self. Be authentic. If, if you are a characteristic company and you don't want to change that, then say that's who you are. If you are kinder, friendly, people or family-oriented organizations, then say that. But don't pretend to be one thing that you want because that's where you're going to see the turnover. And, you know, the recruiting market is much more savvy than they were. So they're so fine, they're looking harder and, and they can see things. They'll do reference checks on you. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.